As aspiring wise individuals, we want to open this episode by disclosing that we are people of color of different cultures. Although we are considered minorities and face racism, we recognize that we do not fully understand the pain and prejudice our Black brothers and sisters experience on the daily. It takes a lot of self-reflection and knowledge to become wise, especially in topics concerning race and racism. It takes real conversations with our families and friends, being educated on African-American history, and it takes actions that fight racism in our daily lives. In all, here at Wisish Women, we direct this episode to all of our people of color who wanna to commit to identifying the racism within our cultures and how to destroy these discriminatory ideas about one race, the black race. As people of color, we also need to take accountability on our faults and cannot expect the black community to teach us how. It is up to us to bring change within our own communities and therefore bring change into our families, friends, jobs, and especially political parties. And with that being said, we want to take a moment of silence for all of the Black lives lost due to police brutality and racism, lives lost like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Hello, everybody. This is Anna Vega, and I will be directing this episode on people of color accountability. And my co-host. Hi, I'm Gabby. Hi, guys. It's Sonia. Welcome back to Wiseish Women. In today's episode, we're going to cover how people of color can effectively help our African-American communities in reflection to the current nightmare that we are experiencing. And they have experienced for generations. We dive deep to the disparities they face in policies, healthcare, and other systematic, systemic racism. Uh, we take a look into our own prejudice against uh, their communities, communities and discuss calls for action in our faults for long-term resolutions. And with that being said, um, what have you guys learned about uh, African, the African-American history uh, here in America? In school, we usually just learn about slavery, right? We know it was bad, but you don't realize how it affects people later. They give you very much the basic. For sure. When researching a lot about the history of racism in America, a lot of what Gabby said came up about how in school, we just learn about slavery and that's it. And the conversation needs to be a lot broader than that. We were taught that the statement of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness was given to everyone in this country, but that was a false hope and false reality that when the founders of America wrote the Declaration of Independence, they didn't think about African-Americans. They weren't part of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And what I found interesting about that article, that the, it was an Al Jazeera article on race history mm -hmm. in Ferguson, I found it so interesting that the people who wrote the Declaration of Independence, 40 of the 52 who signed it had slaves. I personally did not know about, I knew that Benjamin Franklin had slaves and a couple other people. 
you know, like the big names. Yeah. But that honestly shocked me. It showed me like what a disadvantage black people had coming into this country and no one to speak up for them. And it's also, so you have the Declaration of Independence, right? Where it guarantees all this rights and this hope for white Americans. So from the moment the Declaration was written, white Americans have had this advantage to build a foundation for the upcoming generation. Whereas it wasn't until the 13th, 14th and 15th Amendment where African Americans were given the same rights. So what you see is African-American communities are playing this game of catch-up. But while they're playing this game of catch-up, they have these hurdles they have to jump over, whereas white Americans did not. And we're going to talk a little bit more about those hurdles, but it's more so African-Americans are just trying to catch up to everything the white Americans have. Yeah, that's true. I think apart from like, school, I have realized the lack of information that school textbooks have. And for me, I think I've realized how much they've consistently missed the fact that Black people, even enslaved, fought in our wars, Mm -hmm. fought in the Civil War that we've learned over and over again about. And it's like, we barely ever heard the mention of Black Americans. Mm -hmm. And their part in, in the war and how they've lost their lives. I can only imagine what they were suffering because they weren't even acknowledged that they fought in the war. Not even that. They were kidnapped from their home countries, taken overseas where they saw and they experienced death, right? Mm -hmm. On boats, places that weren't like built many people. And then they were brought here and meant to fight their captors wars which is ridiculous honestly and to say that america was ethically built would be such a clear falsehood that Mm. it's shocking that people still bring up the claim that america was built on like white americans because so many other people not just black people also native americans suffered at the hands of these colonizers so that's just the beginning of the story And then when you delve into how it led up to so much discrimination and racial injustice that's deeply embedded in America, that you just see it everywhere. You see it in police systems, you see it in law, you see it in healthcare, you see it in the schooling. It's really, it's really unfair to say that we all are given the same freedoms because you know that some were taken away unjustly. And maybe the people who take away these freedoms don't even notice it, but that's also wrong on them. So that is our job. Our job is to just educate and get educated. I think it's also, Gabby made a great point about being educated, but it's also, it's time to have an honest conversation about everything that's happening in America, because for a long time, it doesn't seem like we opened our eyes and saw the discrimination and the injustices so it's time to have that honest conversation if it means that you're going to feel uncomfortable well the african-american community has felt uncomfortable for so many years and not just uncomfortable they've been losing their lives exactly so if it means that oh i'm going to feel uncomfortable for an hour 
you know, uncomfortable because this is a reality of America. Slavery built the American economy. And we are in this world where we don't even recognize that. In schools, we're taught, here are the slaves. They did all the farm work, end of story. But we don't mm -hmm. talk about the effects of it mentally and physically, psychologically, and the effects that it, ha it has over generations. Mm -hmm. These aren't little things. And a country that oppresses its own people is a country that will never succeed. And we need to have these conversations now. And the then you wonder why people protest on the streets. Like, it's very clear that an injustice is being made. And you know that you should address it. Yeah. I read an interesting article about how in 2008, when Barack Obama got elected, there was this theory that America entered this post-racial world. Right. This, like, a new breath of American history where post-racial, meaning there's no racism, that there's equal justice for all, has entered right. America. And the reality is, no, that w America has never entered a post-racial era. It sucks to say that we haven't learned our lessons. To this day, 2020, we are still facing these same issues. The African-American community is facing these same issues. And it's not to say, I don't want to say, discredit that the moment we elected Barack Obama, that wasn't progress for America. We've mm -hmm. had progresses, but it is not at the rate that it needs to be at. For example, one thing that I really found that was interesting to me because I'm in the healthcare field was an article from the American Bar Association where they discuss how deeply African-Americans are discriminated against in the healthcare field. Their exam times are shorter. Their discharge times are shorter to a point where it almost seems like negligence. The surgeries that they could be signed up for are much riskier or much more dangerous than their white counterparts. And even bedside manner which is a very basic thing. You just find it so much harder to believe for some reason that a black person would have an ailment just as a white person would, which is kind of shocking that your mind goes there. You know what I mean? It's and it happens a lot for black women too. Yeah, I also read the same article and you'll find that African-American women and women of color often have to get second or third opinions from their doctors when something serious is happening. Whereas a white woman, if she expresses concerns, it's taken more heavily. Right. Right. They'll immediately take her in. And that's one thing that you think is completely, you're unable to be biased, right? It's the healthcare field. Clearly, science is right there. You have all your symptoms. You have everything clear as day. Unfortunately, that's not the case. There are people in the African-American community who are raised in disadvantaged neighborhoods, and they are more likely to be at risk of death just mm -hmm. because of intergenerational healthcare risk, like diabetes. They're more likely to get diabetes, cardiac disease, yeah. exactly. all the other diseases that they're prone to, but it's not because they're Black. It's because they are given the unfair, the unfair advantage of not having good quality health care, not getting quality um, emergency care when it comes, like Gabby said, when it comes to hospitals and when science should be on their side, it mm -hmm. comes to the working conditions that they're put on. So you and see that even access to food. 
Right. They're being affected more because of this whole system where it's, they're not giving that, that equality, that equity that so many organizations claim they're giving them. It's so sad to just learn about all of this. It's crazy that we've, we've been reading these articles and they're recent and it hasn't really changed. It's just been different, different occasions and different settings. Another thing that I remembered about the healthcare system that shocked me was that it would be more difficult for Black people to get good health insurance or it'd be more difficult to get the same health insurance than their white counterpart. And that is besides anything like pre-existing health conditions, age, they ruled all those factors out so that you could see so clearly that race is a discriminatory factor. And it's hard to believe that even when you're educated and even when you know about the discrepancy between how white people and black people are treated, healthcare workers and other people just so blatantly disrespect black people by giving them lower quality healthcare, right? Because that is disrespectful. How could you say that you are working for the good of the people when you clearly don't have someone's health in mind? You don't have their safety in mind because you don't, you don't care as much. What blows my mind too, it's at least in the healthcare uh, system, as a doctor or as a healthcare worker, I, I, I am almost positive, and you can correct me, Gabby, but you take an oath of like saving all lives, not just yeah. the ones that you think are valuable, you know? Exactly. You took an oath, and the same with policing. You took an oath to save lives and to protect lives, but because of your own uh, prejudice, ideals, and ideas that you bring into the workplace, it is affecting black people the most yeah and it's not just about it's not only within the healthcare industry or even the police officer institutions it's you have republicans who are actively targeting african-american communities and minority communities with suppression voter suppression so they're trying to make it harder for african-americans to vote exactly. and the big problem with that is that if they can't vote, they can't elect people, politicians, who have the best interests for them. So they can't get the funds for education for their school district, or they can't get funds, proper funds for the police officers or things like that. So right. it's, it's just mind-blowing that these are active things that people are doing. Like, this isn't unconsciously, I'm doing this, and this is right. a, this is... No, I know the pros and cons to this, and I'm choosing to put down an entire community. It's an endless cycle. If people don't have access to vote, they can't choose what they need in their community. So then it just continues on and on until you have a community that is basically pushed out of their homes in order to, and this is gentrification, right? Just basic gentrification. They push people out of their homes in order to create cutesy little businesses so that they can make money. And it creates an endless cycle of unwant and really blatant and lack of care for the Black community and for those who aren't as privileged. Something as like home mortgage loans. And we've, got, we've seen, I've seen a bunch of documentaries and news articles on this. If an African-American community wants to buy a house in a very nice neighborhood so their kids can go to a really nice school. Because the reality is, if you want to go to a really nice school, 
a really nice school in the sense that they have the best resources for their kids. You go to a really nice neighborhood. African American communities aren't given those loans. So they have to reorganize and often go to neighborhoods that don't have the best education system. And that ultimately leads to kids not having the best education, not having the best resources to pursue a better future for themselves. I think that's where you see all like the redlining maps that governors consistently try to change. Um, You see that today, like they're the way that they, the uh, counties are organized. It's all, it's all part of the system that, you know, they want to redline certain areas because of black community is there and they don't want to fund those kind of neighborhoods. Exactly. Um, It's kind of shocking because your job as a worker for the county, for the state, you're supposed to be at the hands of the people. You're supposed to be looking out for their best interests. But instead, you choose to fund people who you know, you know they're going to fund you in the future, right? That's you really not taking advantage of your position because it's your job to uphold communities, to make your whole city better or your whole state better. And instead, you decided to allocate those funds to people who don't need it as much. And it's funny that you mentioned that because with this whole pandemic, you know, how they were giving loans for small business owners and it turned out that they were giving it out to businesses like Shake Shack who have more than 50,000 workers uh, got a fair share of that money that was supposed to help small businesses. And Shake Shack decided to return that money to the government so that actual small businesses could uh, gain from that. It's also not just the system. Reading these articles and just being educated on the topic, you realize it's two major factors. It's changing the system and changing the culture. And you have to have these open conversations with your peers and have this conversation of this history of injustice. This is how it started. And this is how we're going to end it because if you don't change the culture we're just repeating history at this point and we've we've been repeating history at this point i know that in the latin american community there's blatant racism i've been lucky that my family is very open to having these conversations and they're very progressive but i know that for many people And for a lot of our viewers, it's not the same. And once you get educated, the next step is to ask questions like, how have you guys experienced racism in your lives? How have you guys contributed to racism? There is a lot of blatant racism in the Latin American community. And a lot of times people are just quick to disregard it because you think, oh, well, I mean, we're people of color too, right? So it's not that big a deal. Like, oh, we've suffered too. But I saw a really interesting post the other day from one of my um, high school mates. Her name is Elisa Baena. And it was talking about how Cubans who have fled Cuba, and how despite the fact that they have suffered, it doesn't take away from the suffering that Black people have also had. Mm-hmm. And it is also not the same. So while you think, oh, it's fine that I say these things because we've gone through shit too. Let's say you lost your job. You see a homeless man on the street and you refuse to give him money because you lost your job. So you deserve that, right? But 
that's clearly not true. This person is at a much more disadvantaged position than you. Mm-hmm. And simply because you have, you should be able to sympathize with this person, not just disregard them because you're also in a position of stuff to make sense. So what she so eloquently stated was that we're in such a unique position to understand black people and yet we fail to do so. So it's our job to really seek that understanding and to really try and empathize with them. Me and Gabby are part of the Latino, uh, I guess, fam. Um, When you said that, you know, you hear phrases like, oh, you you can't have a boyfriend that is black. The root of it comes from racism, right? But I think a part, a, a huge part of what uh, the Hispanic community suffers from is like the side effect of colorism, right? We're always uh, discriminating against our own kind who are darker than us. A simple fact like me and Gabby are two different skin tones. Gabby's a lot lighter than I am. I'm brown, I'm a brown Mexican. And going back to like the TED talk that I shared with you guys about colorism, whom uh, Chica Alcoro, who was a second year MBA, who was a second year MBA student at the time at Stanford, um, she, you know, discussed the fact that our own cultures, our own communities discriminate against us just because we are a a different skin tone, you know, Um, it goes back. Oh, it, it starts even from the point of childbirth. Like my own family, and I won't mention names, but we weren't the favorite ones because we were of d- darker complexion uh, compared to our cousins who are lighter complexion. It, it starts from like then. And I know, I mean, this doesn't happen in my family because we all have brown eyes, but it is true a lot. Never one kid has lighter eyes or has more um, Eurocentric features, they tend to favor that child. They tend to support and they tend to bring up their beauty any chance they can. And while these things aren't wrong in and of themselves, it's wrong to do them while you're also disregarding your other children or your other family members who have just look different, not because of their intelligence, their personalities, nothing like that. It's just because one of them looks more European than the other. It's more so of the treatment of the individual that has the darker skin. With this whole movement that's going on, I'm really happy that we are talking about racism within our own communities because we need to start within ourselves and then grow out. And being honest, there is racism within the South Asian community. And like Anna said, like racism is the start of it, but it stems down to colorism. So this idea of being like, being light skin is the more favorable individual, which leads right. to mistreatment of people that tend to have darker skin tones. And that unfortunately within the South Asian community leads to caste systems and then Darker skinned individuals are treated very, very poorly because of that. To combat those ideology, like I said, 
you have to change the culture. You have to have an honest conversation with your parents, your family members, your peers that have this ideology that just because you're light skin, you are the greater one and you are the superior one. Right. It's about, you cannot have these judgments about people based on their race or their culture. One thing I found really helpful within my family is to truly analyze how your parents, family members think and how they talk. So my family, we practice Islam. And one of the most effective ways we combat these issues with when my brother and I talk to our parents is we'll pull up the Quran and be like, well, if you have these viewpoints, why does the Holy Book say otherwise? So it's a con, and I understand it's exhausting to have these conversations, but you need to have these conversations if you want to make a change. And I think just over time, you learn to kind of calm yourself down. Because I see the difference between my sister and I when we have these conversations. I've already been having these conversations with my family, but she's kind of started doing this. So she gets so mad when the family doesn't agree with her. But I think over time, and once you continue combating racial inequality. But with the conversation, my thing is, you don't need to talk about it every single day. Mm-hmm. When the conversation comes up, when you see it vividly, the racism, and within those comments, you have to say something. Because if you don't, it's this idea of like, they didn't say anything. It's fine. My brother and I will have these conversations about how the government treats the African-American communities with my parents. And the reality is, if, they, if the government is so willingly to treat African-Americans like trash, what makes you think they won't do that to your own community? Especially with the current administration. President Trump doesn't care about political correctness. You think, if we're being honest, do you think he knows the difference between an African-American person versus a brown person? No. So if you're going to say these racist things, remember, it could easily happen to you. So you need to stand up for the African-American communities. That's the thing that's so hard to kind of deal with. Especially, like, I'm saying that even for myself. Like, complacency is, honestly, you're saying that you're okay with the problem. And it's really our job to bring to light the problem. Something that I would have to work on is talking to those family members that don't feel the same way. The beauty with social media, especially with the past few couple of weeks, is that we saw change very rapid. But reality is, change doesn't happen within the first couple of days. It doesn't happen within the first couple of weeks. It takes months and years. And that is something that you, we all as a society need to have that conversation. There will be moments where things aren't going to look up and you will feel defeated. But that is not an excuse to not do anything anymore. You have to keep it going because the African-American community has gone through this injustice for so many years. It's time for us to step up. This idea that it's the African-American community's problems, it's their concern, they have to voice it, mm-hmm. that's bullshit. They, they've done enough. It's now time for us to voice those opinions. And if it means that There are going to be days where you're going to be tired. There's going to be moments where you're not going to want to fight with someone. 
and those days will come. You don't need to have that conversation with them then and there. You can have it the next day. Be like, hey, I heard you say something that didn't settle well with me. Can we talk about it? It's about having these conversations because it, we need to remind people. And I think I get that it's a unsettling feeling when you're having these conversations with close friends or family members. To me, I have to ask, I have asked myself where it's like, well, how long am I going to have to continuously vocalize my values and what I stand for uh, to a family member for them to actually respect that the fact that at least what they should be doing when they're in presence, in my presence, knowing my values and knowing what I stand for, they should be respecting that at least in my presence. Whatever you do outside of my presence, that is up to you. And that it's up with whoever's in higher power, if you believe in a higher power. Um, and because it, there's like this c controversial thing where it's like, well, how am I going to cut off my own family? Like we're blood, but it's also coming to a point where it's like, you have to, at some point you're going to have to distance yourself because they're continuously not respecting you, your values and other people. And it's much easier done with friends because friends, we don't maybe have those kind of uh, blood connections, as you say. Um, so it's, it might be easier to cut off them than your family. Um, so it, I know it's, I'm just trying to say like, it's going to be hard to navigate um, that kind of relationship. But as long as you're having those conversations, I think you're doing what needs to be done. You're not, even if you have those conversations and you can obviously tell when family members are not there, they're not listening. You possibly could have an influence on your cousin. You have an influence on the younger generation by the words you are saying. So I don't want people to think that just because you're saying something, it's not being heard. It may not be being heard by the person you want it to be heard, but it is being heard by someone. And it's that level of change where we'll start hopefully moving towards a positive in the right direction. And it's our, I think it's like a constant struggle to like move away from this defeatist mentality mm -hmm. where we think like it's over, it's done, they're never going to understand. And that's it right? It's hard to move away from that, especially when you've been thinking like that for such a long time, when you've been so frustrated with your emotions. So it is really important to move past that and to realize like, this problem is bigger than you. It's bigger than any of your insecurities. It's bigger than whatever your family has to think. It's a whole system. And now it's your job to bring to light all the injustices that have occurred. And kind of, you know, stepping back into the systematic racism that, you know, America does participate in. You know, I don't know if you guys have heard, but as of recent, California became the first state to outlaw a discriminatory law against natural hair for Black women, for Black people. <laughs> yeah, we were speaking about it recording. And you, I think, Gabby, you were saying, like, it's just crazy. Like, it's just hair. And it's weird that other extremely diverse communities or states, like, let's say New York, right? A bunch of different people there. Miami, you have a lot of people from the islands. Mm -hmm. So 
how could you really it's kind of strange i think that you're not like representing these people and like your work for it like it's just hair i understand the whole keep your hair clean and all that but you know for a fact these people were keeping their hair clean they just had curly hair like they just had black hair what were you gonna do it's beyond them it's just you're born with that it's like can't do anything about it <laughs> the fact that that is even a law says a lot says a lot about america that with everything going on our biggest concern is that you you should be allowed to keep your natural hair like that mm -hmm. is, it's like what do you like this is my natural hair what do you think i'm gonna do with it like i'm it's just it baffles me that this is our thought process right now in america that we focus sometimes on such the small things that we don't want to deal with the bigger issues at mm -hmm. hand i think that's another thing that happens a lot in latin american communities and i just bring it to that because i know that most of our audience is living in miami or living in south florida so you experience this a lot but i know that even at a young age people would be favoring straight hair over curly hair i grew up with straight hair and then I went through puberty and I loved my curly hair, but it was so weird because I know so many others in my family and in my community wanted to straighten their hair, continuously put relaxers or keratin in their hair. And they just wanted to keep it straight because God forbid their hair was curly. And I was always shocked by that. I thought that it was so weird that people were trying to hide like the natural way that their hair was it just seemed like so futile like so irrelevant that why would you even waste money on that like just keep your curly hair clean and it'll be just like good hair right mm -hmm. uh, maybe that's just my frustrations with it and i know my cousins had the same problems they grew up with curly hair and people were telling them oh you'd look better with straight hair telling them to do keratin which ruins your hair it literally like so it's just hard to kind of realize that it is so deeply embedded in our community and you even have to fight for that i mean california was the first state but uh as of now new jersey is awaiting for the governor's signature to pass uh the crown act which represents uh create a respectable workplace for natural hair and you know that's only two states out of the 50 so we have so much work to do just bringing up the article and the case for the natural hair just goes to show how deep-rooted the issue is that it's not just this one little thing it's everything that the african-american community has to go through okay so as a director of this episode, I wanted to ask my co-hosts about their perspectives and what they have personally experienced. And so one of my first questions is, do you think you have privileges as a person of color? And if so, what are they? Okay, so out of these three lovely women, I'm definitely the lightest. So I know that I have privilege. I know that I just have privilege above the people who are darker skin than me. For sure. I knew at a very young age that I was privileged in the sense that that privilege came from my parents working very hard, allowing my brother and I 
to have like the best education, being in the best neighborhoods and things like that. In that sense, I am very privileged, but it goes back to physical features. When I go out, I am not white. I am, I'm a brown woman and you definitely see the stairs and you definitely see people looking at you twice. So yes, I have privileges and I always, always voice those. And I always keep that in the back of my mind, but it is kind of a crazy thing of like, you can be privileged, but at the end of the day, people are going to look at your skin tone. And that goes back to African-American communities because there are individuals in the African-American communities that are doing amazing work, right? They went to those best universities to work for the best businesses, but because of their skin tone, they're already looked at. They're already looked at lesser than. Um, what about you, Anna? I, I definitely do have privileges, even as a you know brown Mexican woman. I I can acknowledge the privilege that I do have just in my own community. I am a legalized Mexican here in America, and so my privileges stem from having funding for college, um, having the ability to travel to other countries. Um, And in regards to, I guess, physical aspect, I am, there are darker people uh, from me in my own community. And just going back to black people, I am just lighter uh, from them. So I do um, benefit from that privilege. Maybe I'm not seen as a threat simply because I am lighter. Yes, I do have privileges. And like Sonia said, like I do try to keep that in mind 100% of the time. But on to my next question. Can you remember the moment you thought to yourself, oh, I don't believe in this. This kind of thinking can hurt others uh, when it comes to common phrases that you hear, whether it's at home or within your culture and the community. I can start. Recently, I heard a phrase, tired of black people using the race card as if we don't suffer from our brown skin and our accents. And this is exactly why I wanted to do this, this kind of podcast to voice the minorities, but as well as acknowledging our own privileges as minority. It is true that we suffer from a lot of things as Mexicans, at least from my perspective. But, and I was like, wow, you really are selfish. It's just like, wow, you, you really can't put yourself in other people's shoes. Like, I don't understand. And, and to my, my response to that was like, this isn't about you. This is about our black brothers and sisters who get killed because of their race. And you just simply need to reevaluate yourself and what you value. I think it goes back to that conversation everyone's having with like some people doing the hashtag all lives matter but you cannot use that hashtag unless you care about all black lives matter until you accept that and you're fighting for the african-american community you can't talk about everything else you can't say all lives matter the african-american communities the minute 13 14 and 15th amendment was signed they were promise and guaranteed equal rights so the conversation now is we were given these rights but why are we still treated as third class citizens not even second class citizens really it's like what anna said it's dismissive of the real problem because we're all the minority 
So in order for our voice to be heard, we have to really group together and we have to be able to have a consensus. You know that human life is valuable and you know that you should treat people with respect. So then why can't you give that respect to the Black community in their time of need? It's just, it goes back to what I said earlier, is that if you think the government can treat African-Americans like trash, you know in a heartbeat they're going to do it to you guys. It's about having these conversations. It's not just about changing the system. It's also changing the culture. And if you don't talk about these things, it's going to repeat. And it's frustrating because it's 2020 and we should not be having these conversations. Stepping outside of your own communities, what strategies can you use to be anti-racist in matters of, you know, when it comes to racism and the side effect of colorism? For me, at least, is saying enough is enough is enough and just, it's going to sound repetitive, but just having those conversations. Like if someone does say something racist and it's often people at school or like my peers and stuff like that, it's just holding them accountable and be like, you cannot say those things. I don't care if it's a joke. I don't care if it's for the likes. You cannot say those things because people are suffering from it. It's about holding people accountable. It's holding your community accountable. But it's also listening and hearing to experiences that the African-American community is going through. You may not understand it fully. You may not understand physically what they went through or mentally what they went through. But you can understand the pain. At least that's what I've been doing. And sending articles. You just send out articles. They might read it. They might not. But it takes only a minute out of your day to send articles and someone's going to read them. Yeah, I think I've been doing the same thing. Just making sure we have a conversation about it. Because, you know, social change starts at home. So really the way to make a big difference is to be able to talk about things. That's like the first step. Once you open up the conversation, then there's a world of possibilities where that conversation could go. And it's also having that conversations and then telling them in which ways they too can help the movement about either spreading the conversation or registering to vote. And I think a big thing that's kind of difficult for people who are liberal and trying to have conversations with their conservative families is, or not even that conservative, just having conversations with their parents or anything, is trying to not make them feel isolated from you. Mm -hmm. You want to make them understand your position, but not feel like they're the enemy. Yeah. Because then they are going to feel like they don't belong in this movement, or they don't deserve to be talking about something. They're going to feel even more isolated from the problem. I think practicing anti-racism is something that you're going to do daily as a person of color, as a white person, even as a black person. We're all infected with this virus that has been going on for so for centuries, for generations since this whole country started. It's it took so much time for it to be engraved in us. And so it's going to take a long time for us to be out of this virus. So I think bringing it outside of the community, my own community, it's donating to organizations 
who are in charge of organizing protests, peaceful protests, and who are in charge of funding uh, elected officials into office who represent our values and who are fighting for our rights as people of color, as black people, as uh, whatever other minority group that you um, identify with. Um, and so, yeah, and personally, I have not done that, have not done such a good job at, you know, voting in my own community, like where I am right now at Tampa Bay. I don't know who is the governor or who is the mayor. And so that's going to be my step into researching who are going to be the elected officials on the next uh, election, not just a presidential election. And that goes back to our conversation. Mm -hmm. Change starts locally. So it, it is good. And that's a really good point, Anna, to vote in your district. So often we focus so much on the presidential election and that is important, but local elections are very valuable because they bring in funds. They're the ones that change your city. And when we go back to police brutality, that's not the federal, that's local. So if you want to change the culture and you want to change the system within your city, your town, you have to vote local. Like there's no other way to go about it. You can have all these conversations and you can have, you can post everything you want on social media. But if you're not, I feel like we're doing a lot of talking and we're not doing a lot of walking. Mm -hmm. If you want to do the change, you have to do both. Right. And um, we're going to be putting the link to the articles that we found so like you can read what we saw and um make sure you vote locally and i think we'll have a different episode specifically talking about voting and you know because elections are coming up and so we'll have that conversation more in depth soon so until then you will really know what we stand (laughs) um and so i guess i want to end on a good note and because things have been very intense and very saddening. Um, I think there's also time to mention the good things that have happened. Um, And so I don't know if you guys have noticed any hopeful or a positive influence in your feeds. Um, And if so, like, what were they? In my feed, a positive influence was Amanda Seals. Our queen. <laughs> um, but really, her activism made me, like, look inward. It made me realize, like, there's so much more that I could be doing, and I'm really not doing it. So what's the next step that I can take? I hate to be a Debbie Downer, but I see this change that we've made within the past couple of weeks, and that's great. But the incident that happened with George Floyd isn't the first incident. We, this is a repeat. And my biggest fear out of all of this is that we're in this momentum, right? Like we're sharing things, we're posting things, we're having conversation. Mm-hmm. But there will be a day, and I think it's important to talk about this, there will be a day where everything slows down. George Floyd won't be in the news that often. But that means we still keep the conversation going. Justice it doesn't stop when all four of these officers are charged. So I'm asking people that are listening, you need to keep this conversation going. You need to keep it going for the next days, the next weeks, the next months, and the upcoming years. 
And that means posting, having art articles, talking to people, but also voting. And until then, and I hope I'm wrong, until I see that, I'm a little wary because we've seen this. We've seen this. I've seen this senior year of high school. We saw it with Philando Castile and Eric Garner where all of a sudden we see the destructive government that we had, right? And we talk about it. But then when everything slows down, it's like nothing ever happened. We forgot. Right. Exactly. And it's like, this is unacceptable. Mm-hmm. And I'm having this honest conversation with our listeners because enough is enough. We rely too much on the African-American communities to be the ones to voice their concerns. When Amanda Seal said it perfectly, why does she have to be the one that always has to pull a post up and be like, did you see what the African-American communities are going to going through? It's like you as a smart, effective individual should be taking the initiative to see what's going on in your world. Mm-hmm. And until then, I don't know. And I'm like, I'm scared. You're tired. We're all tired. For me, I guess one hopeful moment that I saw in my feeds um, was this video where it was like a 31-year-old man was telling a 16-year-old black male at a protest and he was saying, look, resorting to violence isn't the way because obviously we've been resorting to violence for a while now. This isn't the first time we've been protesting, right? Mm-hmm. So. And what his message was saying, like, you're 16 years old. We might be here 10 years later, and I need you to come up with a new, a new, a new strategy because this isn't helping at all anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's what's hopeful to me, the younger generation. And, and President Obama talks about it a lot, and it's true. Um, the young people really have to. It's unfortunate that the young people have to make that movement. I personally do it for the younger generation, for the lives lost. Um, and I, that, that's the only way that I'm going to keep pushing. And it's true. The younger generation, we are the voice and the reason. And we saw immense change within the past couple of weeks with social media. So imagine what we could do if we just keep going at it. We could... And lastly, I want to have a shout out moment to all the local movements and organizations that are helping um, progress this, this change that we want to see so badly. Um, and so an uh, organization and a movement called the Black Collective Movement in Tampa which is a peaceful group organized to defend and protect black lives, specifically in Tampa Bay. Um, recently, yesterday, they, drif- they drafted a calling script for us to use on Blackout Tuesday uh, to call the representatives in Tampa to demand justice and change within the system. And you can find them at their Instagram page at the BCM Tampa, Tampa, T-A-M-P-A. The second one is the Black Student Union Union at FIU. It's a student-led programming council to help student involvement and address student concerns related to African diaspora at FIU. Uh, They listed a uh, link 
they have a link in their bio that lists resources to stay active and support the need for justice uh, regarding Black lives. And you can find them at their Instagram, BSU, FIU. Also with BSU, there's a, they're a big national organization. So if you're not a student from FIU and you're listening from some, somewhere else, I'm pretty sure your school has BSU and they're very up to date with everything that's going on in the world. So just look at their Instagram page as well. And thirdly, uh, the Movement for Black Lives. This was formed in December 2014. Uh, they created a space for Black organizations across the country to debate and discuss the current political conditions. And you can find them at MVMNT for the number four, B-L-K-L-I-V-E-S. I'm Anna Vega again, and I'm Gabby. I'm Sonia. And thank you so much for listening. We hope that you continue the conversation at your homes, at your homies' house, and you can reach out to us on our Instagram at Women and DM us these, com- these comments, concerns that you have uh, regarding this huge movement that needs to end and change in this whole country and around the world. To end this episode on being accountable as a person of color, we as aspiring wise co-hosts and hopefully aspiring wise listeners, we have to create change. But change doesn't happen with just awareness. It happens when we take action. Here is a list for our wisest family on what to do to bring on change. One, educate yourself. Resources such as books, websites, activists are given to you through the internet and some even for free. Educate yourself on how the black community and African Americans have helped create this country known as the United States. The education system fails to teach us a lot of this information. But because we are aware of it and decide not to learn of it, we ourselves are being complicit of the racist system. Two, talk to your friends, family, and coworkers. Having these open discussions and conversation can change their perspective or at least have them reflect on their values and privileges that they have. Three, reach out to your black friends, family, and coworkers. Listen to them and their stories. They don't get to step outside of racism. They experience it daily. They die daily because of these racist ideas 
that are so embedded in us and in, in this country. If they decide to give you advice on how to be a better ally, good. But if they don't, you should take it upon yourself to do the work and research to make those changes now. Four, hold the government accountable. While we realize that voting doesn't guarantee that racism and the systematic racism in America can be removed today or tomorrow, we can vote for people who are willing and are resilient to make these changes and ultimately dismantle a system that isn't serving justice for all Americans. Five, use capitalism to your advantage. Help black owned businesses, not just now, but always. Thank you for listening to Wiseish Woman. We will see you next time.